You may be seated uh, because I want to retrace some of our steps over the last couple weeks before diving into our passage this morning. We have been probing the meaning of the cross, what the cross accomplished and how it worked. And we are especially looking at those words known as the cry of dereliction uh, that Jesus exclaims from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, We saw two weeks ago that the cross is an event that takes place within the Trinity, within the life of God. It's an event that takes place between the Father and Son and in the Spirit. And of course, in saying that, we don't exclude the human actors on the stage of history. Rather, they are encompassed in what God is doing at the cross. But the cross has to be understood as a Trinitarian event. You cannot understand the cross apart from the Trinity. Only God the Son could offer a perfect sacrifice and only God the Father could receive that sacrifice. And so even when the Father was smiting and bruising the Son he he loves, uh, we, we could say even as he's bruising and smiting the Son, he loves the Son and is one with him. And even as the Son experiences his Father's abandonment, the Son still trusts his Father and is one with him. It's so crucial to see that the one who hangs on the cross is the Christ, the Son of God. He is God in human flesh. He's the Christ, which means He is anointed with the Holy Spirit. He's God in the flesh. He's God's Son, anointed with God's Spirit. He is God, crucified for us. And so as the hymn puts it, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's what happened on the cross. God the Father gave Himself sacrificially to God the Son on our behalf. Then building on that, last week we looked at the cross as the passion of God. We saw there's actually a lot of confusion about this in the history of the church, whether or not God can suffer and how that bears upon our understanding of the cross. The early church fathers said God was impassable. That is, God is incapable of suffering. And they said God is incapable of suffering. God is impassable because they conceived of suffering as bodily suffering. That's how the church fathers thought of suffering. And so the incarnation then overcame the impassibility of God and made it possible for God to be passable in human flesh. God can now suffer bodily in the man Jesus, dying the death we deserved and offering himself as a perfect sacrifice of infinite worth in our place. Now in the modern world, we tackle that question, can God suffer, a little bit differently. Because in the modern world, we tend to think of suffering primarily as emotional or spiritual suffering. And so when we ask the question today, can God suffer, we're really asking, can God experience emotions? Can God be grieved? And the answer to that question, that even the classical theists, like the church fathers would give, is most certainly yes. God has an emotional life. God can experience emotions like grief. That's very obvious from the Old Testament where we see again and again God experiencing various emotions in response to events unfolding in history. And of course we see it in the New Testament as well. And so from that perspective the cross then simply becomes the culmination of God's suffering. At the cross God suffers because of and on behalf of and with his sinful creatures. But this is the suffering of God. His suffering is not like our suffering. He is the sovereign sufferer. And so he enters into our suffering not against his will, but willingly 
and voluntarily in order to overcome our suffering and rescue us from it. And that leads us really to today's sermon. We have been looking at the cry of dereliction, but we've really only looked at it as a standalone cry that Jesus makes from the cross. That cry actually comes from Psalm 22. And so what we really need to do is look at the whole psalm, the whole of Psalm 22. You know, you can think of this one line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as a lyric from a very famous song, a song that all the Israelites would have known. But you know how it is in your own experience. When you hear one line from a song you really know well, you can't help but think about the whole rest of the song. That's just how it is. You start humming the song or singing the rest of the song. And so that's how it is here. Jesus only quotes one line from Psalm 22, but in doing so, he brings the whole rest of the psalm to the cross with him. And so Psalm 22, I would argue, is really the key to the whole story Mark is telling here. Psalm 22 really is the key to the story of the cross. And indeed, it shows us that the cross and resurrection are totally inseparable and integrated. You can't have one without the other. In fact, Psalm 22 shows us that the cross and resurrection and the church's mission that follows all go together. And so when we look at Psalm 22, we see not just a cry of dereliction or a cry of abandonment. Indeed, it's not just a cry of faith in the midst of horrific suffering. It is a cry of victory. It is a shout of triumph. And so that's what we want to look at this morning, bringing Psalm 22 and Mark 15 together. Let me pray for us and we'll begin. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that you would speak to us today. We thank you for your gospel, and pray that it would be proclaimed today. We thank you for Christ, and pray that his glory, glory revealed at his cross and in his resurrection, would be unveiled for us today. Speak to us today, through your Son and by your Spirit, O Heavenly Father. Amen. What is Psalm 22? We read it this morning in its entirety. What is Psalm 22? It is a psalm of King David. And so those, uh, th those words that we find in Psalm 22 were originally the words of Israel's king spoken to Israel's God. But I think David was quite conscious of the fact that his words, the words he spoke in the Psalter, were prophetic of the coming king who would be his greater son and indeed his lord. David, I think, has a very deep sense that he's only keeping the throne warm until the true king arrives. He's a throne warmer until the promised Messiah, the true king, comes. And so the Psalms really have to be understood as the prayers of Jesus, inspired by his spirit, prayed ahead of time by his forerunners like David. You can think of the Psalms as the prayer journal of Jesus, covering the whole range of human emotion written in advance for him to take up and use when he enters into human history, when he is born as David's son into our world. He prepared these songs for his use a thousand years in advance so that when he came, if his people really knew the Psalter, they would be able to recognize him as the one who fulfills the Psalms in himself. If they really knew the Psalms, They'd be able to see this man must be the promised king because he's fulfilling all of these songs. 
It's interesting how a number of different psalms provide the script for different episodes in Jesus' life. So, for example, Psalm 23 is clearly in the background of the feeding story in Mark chapter 6. We looked at that way, way back. Psalm 118 really provides a template for the triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11. Psalm 110 becomes really the basis of his debate with the Pharisees in Mark chapter 12. And here on the cross, it's really Psalm 22 that shows us what is actually happening. Psalm 22 takes us behind the scenes to see what is really happening as Jesus hangs on the cross. Psalm 22 really shows us the whole narrative arc of this story. uh, The whole narrative shape of Jesus' ministry and especially the cross. Psalm 22 is playing out. As Jesus is crucified. In other words, everything that happens as Jesus is crucified is happening according to the scriptures to bring passages like Psalm 22 to fulfillment. So on the cross, Jesus turns to the words he has prepared for just this occasion. And he shouts out that first line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an exclamation in the form of a question. A question that shows he has entered into the deepest and darkest depths of the human predicament. Indeed, the Lord of heaven has entered the depths of hell. And there from the depths of hell, he asks the ultimate question. He is suffering and he does the same thing we all do when we're suffering. He asks why. Now, this is what that means. Before God answers this ultimate question, he asks it himself. Before answering the question of suffering, he enters into our suffering and so shares our questions. God's Son so fully identifies with our plight, our fallen condition. That even as He, the the, the sinless Son of God, bears our sins, as He endures our God-forsakenness, He is stepping into our alienation from God and making it, it, it His own. He is owning our situation, our alienation from God. And that requires Him to ask the why question. The Son of God asked God the Father why. This is a cry that comes from the depths of hell itself. And so we could say, where is God when it hurts? God is right there asking that same question with us in the midst of our pain. Which means that in those times when we are suffering and feeling God forsaken, those times and those places can actually be situations where we can encounter God because He's with us in the midst of our pain. All that to say, you have everything you need to overcome anything you will face, and His name is Jesus. He's been there. He's done it. He's gone through it. He's suffered even more than you can ever suffer. He knows what it's like. He he can sympathize with you and be with you in your pain and enter into that pain with you. No matter how low you sink, He sunk even lower in order to bring you back up. Your biggest question in all of life, the why question about suffering, Jesus Himself has asked that question. On the cross, we find God is with us even in our most God-forsaken moments. 
On the cross, God asks, God himself asks God, why have you forsaken me? God himself in human flesh with a human voice in the midst of the ultimate human pain asks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's great comfort in this, great comfort in knowing that God in the flesh asked the same question we asked. But, and this is where Psalm 22 really helps us, there is an answer to that question. The question the psalm opens with is going to be answered. And the answer is found in the rest of the psalm. And so we have to take the whole rest of the psalm and plug it into the story we find in Mark 15. You can't just read verse 1 of Psalm 22 and stop there. Again, Jesus' use of verse 1 of Psalm 22 is a signal to us. It signals to us all of Psalm 22 is coming to fulfillment this very day. As if by invoking this one verse, Jesus is saying, today, this psalm in its entirety is fulfilled in your hearing. He's taking Psalm 22 and bringing it to fulfillment. And when we look at Psalm 22 as a whole, we find that it shows us a father who will be faithful to his son and indeed to the world he has created. It clues us into the rest of the story, why Jesus suffers and what it leads to. So let's look at the psalm this morning. We again read it this morning. I just want to walk you through it. And I want you to see, start it, starting with this. While certainly the opening line of the psalm, the question Jesus asks, is a question asked in agony and in great pain, it is not a question of utter despair. After all, the psalm says, my God, my God. And so as Jesus speaks these words, we have to say the Son still in some sense possesses the Father and the Spirit, even as he experiences abandonment. It's my God, my God. Now the whole first part of the psalm, really the first 18 verses or so, are clearly describing what happens to Jesus as he is crucified and indeed everything leading up to the crucifixion. Some of what is said in this psalm even has a very explicit, you could say, literal fulfillment. In Mark's Gospels, he tells us the story of the cross. Others we have to kind of fill in the blanks, but uh, you'll see that as we go. Verse 2, the psalmist says, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. Jesus, of course, is hanging on the cross in midday. But the psalmist goes on, he says, and I cry in the nighttime and do not remain silent. Well, as Jesus is hanging on the cross in the daytime, what happens? The sun is eclipsed. Its light is blotted out. The darkness of night covers him. And yet still, even in the darkness of night, he continues to cry out, just as the psalm says. In verse 3, we find his faith remains true. He says, God is holy, enthroned on the praises of his people. So even as he is suffering, even as he is suffering, he's able to call God holy. He's able to, to point to God's enthronement, and he says God is enthroned on the praises of his people. He's like Job. When Job is in the midst of his suffering, Job says, though he slay me, I will trust him. Those are the words of the psalmist here. Verses 4 and 5, he points back to past deliverances. He's recounting history here. Times when his fathers trusted God and were delivered. You might think of great events like the Exodus, where the Israelites trusted God and God delivered them. 
But see, that's the whole problem. That's not happening to the king now. As the king hangs on the cross, he's not being delivered. And so verse 6, he says, I am a worm and not a man. I am despised by all people. And truly, all people have come together against him. That's what we see in, in Mark's account of the crucifixion. Jew and Gentile have come together against him. Rulers and commoners, religious leaders and soldiers, they all hate him for no reason. They have opposed him. They've taken their stand against him. They've nailed him to the tree. The suffering they inflict on him is so dehumanizing. He says, I'm not even a man anymore. I'm like a worm. Verse 7, he says, they ridicule me and shake their heads or wag their heads at me. Again, Mark shows us this coming to very specific fulfillment. Their mockery in Mark 15, 31, and their head wagging in 15, 29. They taunt him with both their words and their gestures. Verse 8 of the psalm, the mockers say, he trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him since he delights in him. This is really the essence of the mockery that's aimed at Jesus. When they say to him, look, if you're the Son of God, if God really delights in you, then come down from the cross. Or when he cries out and they misunderstand his cry because they don't know the Psalms the way they should, they say, let Elijah come and rescue him. He's crying out for Elijah. Let Elijah come and bring him down from the cross. They mock him because they don't think deliverance is coming. And so they're making fun of him. How could you really be God's anointed? How could you really trust in the Lord? And how could the Lord really delight in you if this is happening to you? In verses 9 to 11 of the psalm, the king speaks again. He says he has trusted the Lord since birth, even before his birth, really, in his mother's womb. In other words, he has belonged to the Lord even from his infancy. And certainly this is true of Jesus. He grew up in the faith. He grew up trusting his Lord, his heavenly Father, from the time he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. He lived in a trusting relationship with his heavenly Father. And the fact that his infancy was holy and full of faith means that every part of human life is open to God's work and God's blessed blessing and God's presence and God's salvation. Even infancy, there's no part of human life, no segment of human life closed off to God's working. But now it doesn't seem that's amounted to anything. Yes, God was with him in his, in his infancy, but not now. It says now God is far from him. It seems the God he has trusted from his youth has abandoned him. And so what has happened? Well, verses 12 to 15 go on to describe it. The bulls of Bashan have encircled him, and lions rage and roar at him. These are human beasts, of course. Humans acting like beasts who are ready to devour him. See, when humans turn to unjust violence, they're acting bestial. They're no better than the animals. They have sunk to the depths of the animals. Because these wicked men are described as beasts, it means they have, in the words of Romans 1, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And the worship of the Creator, they have exchanged for the worship and service of creeping things, of creatures. The fact that they're described as beasts here means they have sided with the serpent Satan against the seed of the woman. Their beastliness is the result of their idolatry. They've dehumanized the king by the way they've shamed him and made him suffer. But they've dehumanized themselves through their wickedness, through their violence. See, men, especially the king, should have dominion over the animals. That's the original mandate in Genesis 1. 
But here, these beast men are taking dominion over the truly human one, God's own anointed king. Everything's been turned upside down. The beasts are ruling over the man instead of the man over the beast. Verses 14 and 15 of the psalm. The psalmist says, He's poured out like water. All his bones are out of joint. He says his heart is melting like wax. His strength has been shattered like pottery. He thirsts as his tongue clings to his jaws. He says, you have brought me to the dust of death. See, that's the curse. Death. It's ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Man returns to the ground from which he was made. It's a decreation. It's a total loss of life and life's blessings. That's what the king is enduring. He's undergoing death, the curse. Then in verse 16, we're back to bestial imagery. This time it's dogs surrounding him. Unclean animals have surrounded him. Indeed, this would seem to be the congregation of Israel. This would seem to be the assembly of Israel encircling him and closing in on him to devour him, to destroy him. And then he says in verse 16, in what is very obviously a reference to the cross, a prophetic foreshadowing of the cross, he says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Verses 17 and 18 are again fulfilled in Mark's narrative. They taunt him. They gloat over him. He says they divide his garments amongst themselves. Mark tells us the soldiers did exactly that, gambling for Jesus' clothing to see who would get to take it home. He has been stripped and shamed in every way. It is complete humiliation. But verse 19 says, and this is really the beginning of the Psalms pivot, verse 19 the suffering king says, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. That's what this whole thing has been about. God has been far from him. He says, Lord, do not be far from me. This is another plea for deliverance. He calls on the God who has been far from him to come near, to not be far off. He says, oh, my strength, help me. Here he is, as weak as he could be. And he says, God is his strength. He says, help me, oh, my strength. Deliver me from sore, from dog, from lion, from oxen. And then he says, and here you really see the pivot in verse 21. He says, you have answered me. The psalm opened with a question. Now the psalmist gets his answer. The psalmist has prayed for deliverance. Now those prayers are going to be answered. If the psalmist complained that God was not acting, now God has acted. If he complained that God was silent, now God has spoken. The psalmist before said that he was being dissolved into dust. He was crying out as he returned to the dust from which he came. Now God answers him. The answer to his cry must be resurrection. If that was the curse he experienced, returning to dust in death, what must the answer be? The answer must take the shape of resurrection. And that's what you see here. From this point forward in the psalm, he's now a new man. He's a glorified man. A man who's come back from the dead. Stronger and better than ever. And so what does the psalmist do? Well, before his, t his t 
tongue clung to his jaws. Now he says in verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. He's moving from lament and complaint to praise and celebration. And he calls on Israel, the very people who had wickedly encircled him earlier in the psalm. He calls on the people of Israel. And he invites them to join him in singing God's praises. He says, I will lead you in song praising the God of Israel. And in verse 23, he extends this invitation to the Gentiles, to those who are called God-fearers. Here the Gentiles get to join in with the sons of Jacob. Just as all people had opposed him, now all peoples join with him in worship. Verse 24, he says, God has not despised the affliction of the afflicted. God did not despise him in the midst of his afflictions. God cared even in the midst of his suffering. And now that can be seen. Before God had hidden his face, but not now. Now the joy of God's smile, the joy of God's countenance has returned. Before God was not hearing the psalmist's cries, now he hears and acts. And so the whole situation has been reversed. Psalm 22 started in total darkness. But now we find there's light at the end of the tunnel and that light is God's own light. The light of the world. The light of God's love. The light of God's glory. And so we go from the psalmist's cry of dereliction to his cries of praise. He goes from saying that his heart is melting like wax to saying, let your heart live forever. See, that's resurrection language. Let your heart live forever. The psalm moves from God being far and silent to God being near and speaking and acting. The psalmist, the king, the son was dead. Now he is alive again. Before he was abandoned and alone, now he is fellowshipping with the Father and the saints. The wicked had once surrounded him to kill him. Now the congregation encircles him to join in his praise to the Lord. I think Hebrews 5 really gives a wonderful summation of this, really tying together Psalm 22 and Mark 15. Hebrews 5 says, In the days of his flesh, that's in the days before his resurrection into glory, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Prayers like those offered in the the Garden of Gethsemane. Prayers like Psalm 22 on the cross. In the days of His flesh, He offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His godly fear. He was heard. God heard His cries and answered and delivered Him. So what does it all mean? means the crucifixion will be reversed. The cross is not the last word. The crucified one will be resurrected. The condemned one will be vindicated. The abandoned one will be restored to communion. The victim has become the victor. Through his sufferings, he will enter glory. Through the darkness of the cross, light will break out. But that's not all. And you've really got to see this. He doesn't do these things only for himself. This is what the psalm shows us. His sufferings have a transformative effect on others. Indeed, his sufferings have power to redeem the whole world. To bring many sons to glory with him. Look at the final few verses of the psalm. Starting in verse 27. Because the king has suffered... 
and now been restored. What's going to happen? What's, what's the outcome? All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. What's going to happen? The whole world will convert to the true faith. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, the psalmist says, for the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. What happens? Think about this. What happens in Mark's Gospel right after the cry of dereliction? As Jesus dies on the cross, what happens? The Roman centurion, a Gentile, a representative of the nations, remembers and turns to the Lord. He worships the Lord by confessing, surely this man was the Son of God. Now the centurion is just one man. But what does Psalm 22 show us? He's just one man. But a whole planet is coming after him. He's just one man. But all the nations and families of the earth are coming after Him. He's just the first fruits. He's the beginning of the full world harvest that is to come. And so what's been happening over the last 2,000 years since this took place? More and more of the world has turned to the true God. The finale of Psalm 22 really is coming to fulfillment. Now obviously we still have a long ways to go. But on that day, the day Jesus died, only one man confessed Him as Son of God. Today, millions of people, men and women, black and white, young and old, rich and poor, millions of people are gathering all around the world to confess, surely this man was the Son of God. Millions gathering around Him to make this confession, to to worship Him and worship with Him. Verse 29 of the psalm says, they will worship and eat. That's again what Christians all over the world are doing today. Worshiping together and eating together at the Lord's table. This glory, the glory of a saved world, of a saved human race, this is the outcome and the outflow of His sufferings. This is the answer to the why question. Here's the answer. Why did He suffer so all the nations might know? Why did He suffer so all the nations of the world might be redeemed? Why did He suffer so that the kingdom of Jesus, established at His cross, may grow to fill the world? The psalmist goes on to describe this. He says the kingdom is going to grow from one generation to the next. Verses 30 and 31 say, One generation recounts this story to the next. They come and declare His righteousness to a people yet to be born. That He has done this. That God has done this. God has acted. And so the nations and the generations will know this story stretches out through time and space to enfold the whole of the world, the whole of humanity into its glory. When you teach your child the Christian faith to trust in Jesus and repent of his sin, this psalm is coming to fulfillment. The next generation is being told. So the next generation will be folded into the kingdom. And when you tell your, your neighbor or your coworker this story of what Jesus has done, they too are being enfolded into the kingdom of God, what Jesus has done. See, why did the Son suffer and die? Why did the Father leave His Son to die the wretched, accursed death of the cross? So that through His suffering, He could enter into glory and bring many sons with Himself into the same glory. Why did He suffer? He suffered and died for the world 
to save the world, to transform the world, to convert the world from beast-like God-haters to a people who truly declare God's praises. And the fact that you and I are here today is proof that his sufferings were worth it. The very fact that we are here today proves his sufferings were not in vain. To the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father finally answers. He says, I have forsaken you for a time so that the world will not be forsaken forever. The Son was not spared so that the world would be spared. The Son was cut off from His divine family so that all the families of the earth could be brought into fellowship with the Lord. The Son was forgotten by the Lord so the peoples might remember Him and turn. The Son was brought to the dust of death but then raised from the depths of the earth and is now seated at David on David's throne at his father's right hand in heaven where he is ruling over the nations and claiming them as his own purchased possession ruling over them making them his kingdom the son has suffered and he will be satisfied with nothing less than a saved world in the end and so where's history headed History is headed to the kingdom of God. How is this story going to end? With a global feast. People from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue coming together in the kingdom of God to worship and eat together as the people of God. That's where things are headed. You want to be on the right side of history? You stand with Jesus because history is His. The Son has suffered. And he will be satisfied with nothing less than a saved world in the end. And that's why all four of the Gospels that tell this story end in the same way. What happens? After Jesus is crucified, he's then resurrected on the third day. And then he regathers his scattered disciples into one new community, one new family. And then he scatters them again. But this time they're scattered not in fear. No, he scatters them for mission. He scatters them in love. That's us. We're the ones He has scattered throughout the world. He has sprinkled us into neighborhoods and classrooms and office buildings where we live and, and work as His faithful people, where we can declare His praises not only with our words but with our actions as we live sacrificially, as we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And when we do so, we become signposts. Our very lives become signposts pointing people to the cross and resurrection as the world's only hope. See, what is God's end game? What is God aiming at through the cross? What is God aiming to do? What does the cry of dereliction from Psalm 22 mean when we hear it on the lips of Jesus in Mark 15? It means God wins and evil loses. It means God will ultimately save a great multitude no man can number from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. It means God has faced death for us and taken His own curse so now all the families of the earth can be blessed in Him. It means God is uniting peoples from every people group into a new global family full of love and grace. Jesus died so that the world would be flooded with God's love. 
Jesus died so the whole world would be filled with the knowledge of God's glory as much as the waters cover the sea. The song of Psalm 22, the song that begins with defeat, ends in victory. A victory that comes through suffering. Glory that comes through suffering. The song begins in defeat. It ends in victory. The song begins with a lone man utterly forsaken and it ends with a world saved and united in that same one man. The song begins with a son who has lost his father and a father who has lost his son. It ends with a father and son together sharing their shared love in the Spirit with a lost world so the whole world can be delivered. This is the meaning of Psalm 22. It shows us Jesus died for this purpose, to save the nations, to redeem the world. He was cursed so that all the families of the earth could be blessed in accord with God's promise to Abraham going all the way back to Genesis 12. I want you to see this more than anything is what our culture is crying out for. The world cries out for this. Our culture all around us, it's so obvious, our culture is crying out for an integration point, a way to unite people who are different, a, a way of bringing together different kinds of people into some kind of unity. Our culture is deeply fractured. All you have to do is watch the news to see this, but you don't even have to do that. You can just look around you and see it. We need some kind of way to bring an unum out of our pluribus, to get a one out of the many. And I can just tell you, you're not going to find it in a president. You're not going to find it in politics. You're not going to find it in sports. You're not going to find it in vague platitudes about love and about unity and about just getting along with each other. We are looking for something that will unite our diversity. It is found in Christ alone. Only in Christ can all the different peoples of the world come together as one family. Only in Christ can the many be made one. The only answer to our tribalism, our fracturing, is found in Jesus Christ. The only answer to our identity politics is found in finding our identity in Christ Himself. What's the answer to our identity politics? Finding our identity in Jesus, the crucified one. He alone can unite us. He alone can make the many one. At the cross, it seemed the triumph of evil was complete. Oh yeah, the disciples thought Jesus had a good run, but now it's all come crashing to an end. As He hangs there on that tree, as heaven is silent, as darkness covers the earth. But in that very moment, when it seemed Jesus had lost everything, He was actually gaining the whole world. The cross is victory cleverly disguised as defeat. The cry of dereliction is really a victory shout. It's really a cry of triumph. You know, we like to say, what Jesus did, He did for me. He did it for me. And there's comfort in that, and we should say that. Everything Jesus in His suffering and dying, everything He did, He did for me. We personalize it. We make it our own. We, we own it. We put our name into it. Jesus died for rich. 
You, you can say that. You can put your name in the gospel statement like that. But there's something else we need to say just as much. It's this. What Jesus did, He did for the world. And there's comfort in that too, knowing He died to save the world. He lost it all to gain it all back. That's comforting too. But you know, it's also challenging. It's challenging because it's a reminder of what He wants us to do. It's a reminder that we have a mission. A mission to go into every neighborhood, every town, every village, every office building, every school, every park. We have a mission to go into every city, every state, every nation and proclaim this truth. We're to proclaim the suffering, love, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners, the King of the nations. Let's pray together and ask God's help. Father, we do thank you for this glorious gospel that through the death of your Son, you have accomplished the salvation of the world. That Jesus lost fellowship with you. That the human race, all of us who had lost fellowship with you might gain it back. You are in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to yourself. Father, in love, you unloaded your wrath on this man, Jesus. In love, you raised him from the dead victoriously. In love, you have saved the world. A great multitude, no no man can number. All through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, Father, we ask you to give us faith in him. We pray that you would Grant to us to suffer in union with him and that you would make us sharers in his glory. Father, we pray that you would use us to carry forward his mission to advance his kingdom in the world by how we live and how we speak. Oh, Father, do this that Christ might receive what he purchased on the cross. Nothing less than a saved world, a saved planet, a saved humanity. This we pray in his name. Amen.